some ridiculous warnings out there, like on a McDonald's cup of coffee. You guys may have seen, what does it say? It says, caution what? Contents is hot, right? I mean, that's pretty rudimentary. In fact, just by grabbing the cup, you can kind of realize, hey, this, this cup is warm, which logic would imply means that inside the cup is hot liquid. And so you would look at a warning like that and say, is that really necessary? Another one of these is this one stroll on a stroller that says, caution, remove child before folding. Again, I mean, if, if people are struggling with that concept, they've got too many kids. Um, we need to sit down and talk about them getting more sleep. Or speaking of Chipotle, like we enjoyed tonight, there was this written on a, a Chipotle truck. Warning, drivers do not carry burritos. Yeah, drivers do not carry burritos. Apparently, people were stopping Chipotle trucks and wanting to buy burritos straight off the truck, and that was not an option. Or this one on a shirt that says, do not iron while wearing. Like if you're so tight in your schedule that you're having to iron your shirt while it's on you, on the way out the door, wake up a little bit earlier. Or this one on a hairdryer, do not use while sleeping. Yeah, for all of you who sleepwalk and like to look good while you sleepwalk, don't use your hairdryer. Or this one on pepper spray, which may be my favorite, warning, may irritate eyes. <laughs> I think the hope is that it would irritate eyes, right? But these warning signs are pretty ridiculous at the end of the day. We look at it and we say, really, do, do we need to be warned about that? Isn't this pretty straightforward? Shouldn't you just know this, right? But then there's other times where we can be warned by looking at someone else and seeing what somebody else does or seeing somebody else's failure or seeing somebody else go before us and do something and go, yeah, I don't, I don't really want to do things the way that that person did them because I see the failure, I see the problem, I see the error of their ways. And in Daniel chapter 5, that's what we're looking at together tonight, is we're looking at a situation where this new king in Babylon who's on the scene named Belshazzar should have been able to look at his predecessor, should have been, should have been able to look at Nebuchadnezzar and seen what he did and, and how he messed up, how he erred and learned a lesson from that. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar's life should have been a warning sign to this new king in Babylon, to Belshazzar, but unfortunately it wasn't. And we're going to read about the, the consequences of that. But what I want you to think about is that you have in this book something that eventually you're going to be held accountable for. And that is God's warnings to us. It's God's directions, God's instructions, God's revelation of himself to us and how he wants us to live and how he wants us to think about him and how he wants us to understand who we are and how he wants us to understand that we've got a, a desperate problem that means that we need Jesus Christ and we need the cross and we need his death and we need his resurrection. And apart from that, man, we are hopeless. And God has given us this. And by the very nature that y'all are here tonight, you are in a position where you are gonna be held to a higher level of accountability in the end than so many other people in this world who have never known or heard of or encountered the word of God. The Bible puts it this way, to the one who is given much, much will be required. Well, we have so much more even than Belshazzar had in our text, and we need to make sure that we're paying attention to what God is telling us. So take your Bibles. Daniel chapter 5 is where we're going to be tonight. And it opens with a, a rather startling change because we've been dealing with King Neb, right? King Nebuchadnezzar through the first four chapters of the book of Daniel. And then in chapter 5, it opens up and it says, King Belshazzar. And there's no explanation given. 
There's no, hey, Nebuchadnezzar did this and this and this, and then all of a sudden this happened, and now Belshazzar's on the scene. We just read that now here's Belshazzar. Well, we don't know a ton of what took place to get from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar, but we know that Belshazzar was one of the descendants of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is referred to as his father later in this chapter, which was a term just for any offspring or descendant of, of a, a royal family. So it's possible that Nebuchadnezzar was his grandfather or maybe even his great-grandfather, but Belshazzar falls somewhere in the lineage of Nebuchadnezzar. And he's here, and, and he's probably not the king ultimately over all of Babylon. That was a guy named Nabonidus. But Belshazzar was somewhere in the royal family. And it wasn't until the 1800s that we actually found evidence in an archaeological dig of the existence of Belshazzar. And before that, people were pointing to the book of Daniel going, this is ridiculous. This is clearly a fairy tale because no one named Belshazzar has ever lived. And it was Nabonidus, and this proves that the Bible is just a bunch of made-up stories. But then what happened? Well, we found these archaeological inscriptions that listed the name Belshazzar in the 1800s. And since then, we found a, a, a ton more that back this up as well, that again, validate the fact that the Bible is reliable and that the Bible is not just a made-up story, but it's, it's history. Um, it's not a made-up story, not just, not just. It's not a made-up story. It's actually, in fact, history. So this guy, Belshazzar, comes on the scene, one of Nebuchadnezzar's descendants, and it says there in verse 1 that he makes a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. This chapter opens with this massive feast. You think of a thousand people, right? That's huge. That's enormous. That's not just something that you would say, hey, mom and dad, I'm thinking about having a few friends over. Oh yeah, how many? A thousand. So dad, can you barbecue for us? Right? No, this is, this is pretty huge. But for this time, it wasn't really that big. In fact, we've heard of, of things like this in the opening of the book of Esther. We read of a feast of similar size that went on for 180 days consecutively. So it wasn't abnormal for a king to throw a big feast like this. But there were a couple of things that were unusual about this. It says there in verse one that the king was drinking in front of the people. Well, that was unique because typically a king would eat by himself. If anything, a king had a few people that would eat with him, but he was separate from everybody else. And so the fact that Belshazzar is in front of all of the people that are gathered, that's, that's a little bit unique. There's something strange about this feast. And then the second thing is there, as we'll find out later, his concubines and his wives are all there with him drinking as well. And that was something that was also abnormal. That wouldn't have normally taken place. They wouldn't have necessarily been invited to this party. Maybe the queen's, the, the chief wife, the, the queen would have been there, but everybody else uh, would have been left behind. And so they're all there as well. And so what this tells us is that this was, was quite the, uh, the, the bash. This was a party that Belshazzar was throwing. But we have to ask ourselves, why? Why throw the party? Well, we might initially say, well, because he's the king and he felt like it, right? After all, a king can do whatever he wants to do, yes? But there's... Another reason beyond that, and I, I think it's this. You remember the, the statue dream that Nebuchadnezzar had? Yes? Okay. Well, the head of gold was who? Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, yes? And then we got to the chest and the arms of silver. And who represented the chest and the arms of silver? This is bonus points if you remember back that far. Medo-Persia, right? The Medo-Persian Empire was the next empire to come on the scene. Well, as Nebuchadnezzar, not, sorry, not Nebuchadnezzar, as Belshazzar, I may do that a couple times tonight, as Belshazzar is throwing this party, guess who's camped out outside of the walls of Babylon? The Medes and the Persians. In fact, at this point, the Medes and the Persians had conquered 
every part of the Babylonian Empire except for Babylon itself. So again, it begs the question, why in the world would Belshazzar be throwing a party while his enemies, the Medes and the Persians, were camped outside the walls of Babylon laying siege to the city? There have been different suggestions as to why, but I think the main reason is, is Belshazzar had this opinion that Babylon would never fall. That the city would never fall. And if you remember back to us talking about Babylon back in chapter 2, it had these massive double wall defenses, right? This gigantic, huge, thick, tall wall on the outside. And then inside that, there was another secondary wall that guarded the city. So, I mean, Babylon was well guarded. It was going to be something unique and rare for anyone to ever be able to conquer Babylon. On top of that, they had the Euphrates River going straight through the city, which meant that they could farm and they could have uh, irrigation for their crops and their food, which meant that they would never run out of food or, or water while they were being attacked from the outside in. And so as long as nobody could ever breach the walls, which these were impressive walls and there were two layers of them, the Babylonians were going to be fine inside their city. They didn't really need to do anything else. And so it was a, a show of bravado and a show of confidence and a show of of just bravery for Belshazzar to gather his people together and say, yeah, the enemy's outside the gates, but we're going to throw a party. We're going to pretend like we're fine because we feel like we're fine. We're going to think no one could ever attack us. No one could ever take us down. And so you know what? Yeah, the threat may be out there, but we're not going to worry about the threat. We're just going to have a party here and now. Y'all, sometimes we can forget what we know to be the inevitable when it comes to the end of the world. Sometimes we can forget that this world is really Babylon in this scenario. That this world is under this false sense of, of security. And this world looks around and says, you know what? Nothing can ever touch us. Not, nothing can ever come up against us. You Christians want to talk about the end of the world. You want to talk about God. You want to talk about Jesus. Where is he, right? And the world goes about their lives. And the world goes about partying. And the world goes about carrying on and not thinking about or not even entertaining the thought that eventually all of this is going to come to an end in the world, including you and I, we're all going to be held accountable to what God has revealed about himself. The first point tonight is this, y'all. I want you to remember what's coming for this world. I want you to remember where this world is headed. As we're going to find out in the rest of this, spoiler alert, right? Babylon falls. And if somebody had shown up and said to Belshazzar and to the rest of his attendants in that party, hey, look, this city's about to go down. In fact, that very night we'll find out. The city is about to go down. You're about to be ransacked by the enemy. You should surrender now. You should do everything that you can to get right with the person that's coming to overthrow this regime. You should be ready for this. I wonder what would have changed. Well, here's the reality, guys. We've received that message. We know where this world is going. God has told us where this world is headed. God has told us, look, this world is not going to last, right? 1 John 2, 15 through 17. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, right? We like to camp out there in this verse, and we talk about how we need to battle sin, and we need to not love the things of the world, and every, but I want you to notice what he says right after that. What does he say? The world is what? Passing away along with all of his desires. 
if you were with us in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's that concept of the fleeting nature of life, the vanity of life. It's like the steam off the coffee cup. It's here and then it's gone. It's not going to last. And that's this world. The world is, is fading away. God is telling us, don't put all your hope and your confidence and your trust here. Don't throw a party while the world is passing away. Understand it is passing away and ask yourself, what do I need to do about that to be ready for that? Or Peter puts it this way. Second Peter chapter three, Peter says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of a reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets in the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your commandments, sorry, through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation, okay? So this is the world looking at Christians going, you Christians are talking about the end of the world. You're talking about Jesus coming back. Where is he? Peter said, don't be surprised when people come and, and say those things because they will come and say those things. They are gonna push back on you. So what should we do? Well, Peter says, that, look, these people that wanna challenge and say, well, look at everything's fine, so let's go on partying. He says, look, they're deliberately overlooking this fact that the heavens existed long ago when the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. What's he talking about there? He's talking about in, from Genesis chapter six, he's talking about the flood, right? He's saying, look, there was a time when the world was destroyed by the flood. And he says now in, in verse seven, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist, just like the heavens and earth that existed at that point in time were stored up for the flood. He's saying, look, the, the heavens and the earth that exists now is stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. In other words, don't try to judge God's timetable based on your timetable. Peter's saying, we can take it to the bank that this world that you look around at, this world that we love and we're so tempted to love right now, he's saying just like it was once stored up for the flood, it's now stored up for fire, for the final judgment of God, right? It's, it's that colloquialism that we have when we say, look, it's all going to what? It's all gonna burn, right? And we think, man, that's kind of crass to say that, but it's true. That's what Peter's telling us here. This world, y'all, is going to burn. The things that you love about this world are not permanent, not a single one of them. And it's all gonna be gone. It's all gonna be fade away. And this world, y'all, promises us all these rewards, just like in a moment here, we're gonna see Belshazzar promises rewards to his servants and to Daniel. And I love, eventually at the end, Daniel says, look, you can keep those things because Daniel knows that it's not, it's not worth anything because Babylon's about to fall. Daniel gets that. Daniel understands that. Y'all, when the world promises you things like fame and wealth and status and power and satisfaction, look, you need to understand that those things are just mirages in this world. It's not going to satisfy you. It's not, you're never gonna have enough. You're never gonna be successful enough because you're always gonna be able to look at somebody else who's a little bit more successful than you are and say, man, I wish I was as successful as this person. You're not gonna have enough money. You're gonna look at somebody else and say, man, I, I wish I had more money because look at how much money this person has. And if you think sex is gonna satisfy you and you're pursuing that outside of the, the, the realm of, of marriage and outside of a godly marriage, y'all, that's not gonna satisfy you. It's gonna disappoint you. It's never gonna measure up to your expectations. See, this, this world is gonna promise you things and hold out things and say, look, pursue this, chase this, this, 
This is what you want. This is what you need. You need to remind yourself of where this world is headed, the end of this world. Just like all those drunken partiers at this party that Belshazzar is, is throwing here, they needed to remember and be reminded that, hey, this world is not invincible. Hey, look, Babylon, you're not invincible. Your end is, is set in stone. Nothing that you have here is eternal. In fact, it's going to fall tonight. Are you ready for it to fall tonight? Guys, we need to remember where this world is going and be ready for the end of the world. Again, this is all part of God's revelation to us. This is all part of what we're going to be held accountable for. Eventually, the Lord's going to say, look, I, I, I told you what was coming. What did you do with it? Just like back in chapter two, right, of Daniel. The Babylonians knew what was coming. Daniel had laid it out pretty clear. They knew what was headed their way, and yet, what did they do? Rather than deal with it, they threw a party. Peter talks to us later on in that same passage from 2 Peter 3 about how we should live in light of the fact that we know what's coming. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what things? The things of the world, right? Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Stop and read that again, y'all. Since this world is going to be dissolved, since this world is not permanent, this world is not eternal, this world, we know where it's headed, right? Since that's our reality, how should we then live is the question that's being asked by Peter here. What sort of people should we be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Y'all, the, the fact that this world is going to end should change the way that you live today. You may not be alive for the end of the world, right? And if you're in Christ, you, you're not going to be here for the end of the world. But listen, you need to live differently because of the end of the world. Our, our goal in life is not eat, drink, and marry for eat, drink, and be married for tomorrow we die and just become worm food again because that's not true. This world was created by God. It's going to be brought to an end by God and there's going to be a day of judgment where we stand before God. And the question is, are you ready for that? Are you ready to be held accountable for what God has revealed to you? Pick back up in Daniel chapter five. We've only gone through one verse. We've got the whole chapter to get through. I promise we will. Daniel chapter 5, verses 2 through 4, it says this, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, there's the reference to his father, had taken out of the temple. What temple? The temple in Jerusalem, which means they were the vessels used for the worship of who? Yahweh, the God of Israel. He commanded they, that they be brought and that the king and his lord and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Verse 3, then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple. He emphasizes this point because that's significant here. They brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. Again, just in case you were forgetting what these were. And the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. And they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Y'all, in what can only be described as a, a drunken stupor. Belshazzar calls for the vessels that were taken from the temple in Jerusalem. Now, I, I want us to understand what these were, okay? 
These were vessels that were designed by God, commanded to be created according to God's standards, God's program, God's blueprints, right? He had commanded that these things should be made to be used in the temple. Why? What was it that was taking place in the temple? What were they doing there with these vessels? They were using them to do what? Worship. Worship who? God. The only true God. The God of Israel, Yahweh, the same God that you and I worship today, right? That's what these vessels were designed by. They were sanctified. They were, in other words, they were set apart for use to worship God. What did Belshazzar do? He brings them in and he takes them and he begins to worship false gods by drinking wine out of these and toasting to the gods of silver and wood and bronze and iron and stone. He's mocking the God of Israel. In fact, this is so intentional. Think about it this way. When Nebuchadnezzar ransacked Jerusalem, he went into the temple and he took these things. He took these vessels. He took these, these, these cups, these goblets, and the other things. And he takes them back to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar, not even Nebuchadnezzar, dared to do what Belshazzar is doing here. Instead, Nebuchadnezzar took them and he put them in the house of his god, most likely Dagon. And, and the, or Marduk, sorry, not Dagon. Dagon was Philistines. Marduk is Babylonians. He took them and, and put them in the, the temple of, of Marduk because it was a symbol that, for him that Marduk was greater than Yahweh. That's bad, right? That's bad enough. That's significant. But to take them then and, and to use them, vessels that were created to worship God and to use them to worship stone and iron and wood, and, uh, this is unbelievably heinous. There were plenty of gods, right, that Belshazzar could have, attacked and made fun of. In fact, he could have gone after the gods of the Medes and the Persians that were right outside his walls. But instead, he goes after the God of Israel. I wonder why that was. And we don't know for sure, and I can't say that thus says the Lord, this is why, but I have to imagine that in the back of his mind, he was probably remembering Daniel chapter 2 and the dream that his father Nebuchadnezzar had had. I got to imagine that somewhere that was written down in the royal records, the interpretation of that dream, that Babylon was going to fall to the Medes and the Persians, and now here's Belshazzar. And in his prideful, drunken arrogance, he's in there thinking, the Medes and the Persians are outside the city. They're not going to touch us because this is mighty Babylon, right? And so what does he do? He says, oh, I remember what the, the, that Israelite said. In fact, why don't you go get the, the vessels from the, the temple of Marduk? Why don't you bring those in here? Why don't we defile that God and mock that God by drinking toast to these, these gods of wood and stone and iron, these gods that are so much stronger than the God of Israel? Why don't you go get those, bring those in here, and let's, let's get drunk even more in the vessels that God created to only be used to worship him. Again, that's somewhat speculation on my part, but I, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to think that that's what he was doing. One thing that we learn very quickly in the Bible is that God is not in the business of being mocked by men. And that follows through here in Daniel chapter 5. We pick up in verse 5. Immediately, immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him and his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the astrologers. We've seen this before, haven't we? 
And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, here's the promises that I referenced earlier, the promises of the world, the world that's ending, the promises of Belshazzar, Belshazzar whose reign was about to end. And he says, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple, a royal color, and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. That's why we we believe that Belshazzar was not the actual king, but Nabonidus was. Nabonidus one, Belshazzar two, whoever interprets this writing, three. He shall be third in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, even more so now, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Okay, so a drunk guy seeing things is not surprising, right? But this is more than that, because other people see the same thing. In fact, people that weren't at the party are called in. The wise men are called in. And they see the writing on the wall as well, and yet they are not able to interpret it either, even with all of these promises of reward. Guys, this was no drunken vision. This was a divinely appointed event. This was God showing up and confronting Belshazzar in his pride and his arrogance. And what Belshazzar should have known based on what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, he was about to be called to account for, for what he had done with that. So he's terrified. His color changes and he calls his wise men and he's willing to offer them the third position of power in the entire kingdom and still they're not able to do it. Just to recap, this party is going on. The armies of the Persians are camped outside the city walls. Meanwhile, the Babylonians are throwing this wild party and their king even leads them in these drunken toasts using the vessels of worship that God had created to be used in his temple And then God shows up, and everything changes. The party's over at this point. Terror grips the heart of the king. Then in verse 10, the queen remembers Daniel. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. Don't don't worry about it, king. Everything is going to be fine. Here's why. There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, Nebuchadnezzar, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him the chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So in comes the queen, potentially even the the mother-in-law, or the queen mother even, and she comes in and she reminds Belshazzar about this guy named Daniel, again, who Nebuchadnezzar knew. And Daniel's reputation was still there. Why was Daniel's reputation still there? It was because the people knew what Daniel had done. They remembered, they knew about Daniel chapter two. They knew about the fiery furnace with Rakshak and Benny. They knew about Daniel chapter four with the, the other dream of the, the tree and Nebuchadnezzar being driven away. They knew all of those things. They were aware of all of these things. Well, verse 13, Daniel is brought in before the king and the king says to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father brought from Judah. I've heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. So he's flattering Daniel. He was trying to butter him up. Now the wise men, the enchanters have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not 
show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. (laughs) Imagine what's going through Belshazzar's mind right now. He's calling in Daniel, who he understands is from Judah. What else was in Judah that he had just defiled? The temple, right? And the vessels of the house of God, right? The vessels of the temple. And now here comes this Israelite. And he's got to beg and, and flatter him as he's kind of shoving the vessels of the temple behind his back. Like, don't worry about that. That's nothing back there. I wasn't doing anything with those. And he's then asking him, look, can you read this? Because if you can, I'm going to give you all of these things. But then Daniel goes braveheart on him and says, look, king, let your gifts be for yourself. And give your rewards to another. But nevertheless, I will read the writing on the wall. O king, the most high God, verse 18 gave Nebuchadnezzar your father. Notice the appeal to Nebuchadnezzar here. The Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship in the greatness and the glory and the majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Unlike you right now, Belshazzar, by the way, you're left by yourself and the Persians are right outside your gate. He goes on about Nebuchadnezzar, whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive, and whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled, the the pride of Nebuchadnezzar. But when his heart was lifted up, when his pride got the best of him, and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. So Daniel responds, and the first thing he does is he says, King, you can keep your rewards. Why? Well, number one, because Daniel didn't really care about any of that stuff, because he was most concerned with honoring the Lord. But number two, he knew what was coming. He knew that the, this, this power being third in the, the, the rank here was not going to last any longer than the rest of the party, the rest of the evening. So it says, look, you can keep those. In fact, you can just give them to somebody else. But then the second thing he does is he appeals to Nebuchadnezzar. And he goes back over Nebuchadnezzar's life. And specifically, he wanted the, the king to remember why Nebuchadnezzar had been brought low. And we can sum it up really with one word. And what is that? It's he had the sin of pride. The sin of pride. Arrogance, right? That he lifted himself up against the God of heaven. And Daniel's telling Belshazzar, look, Belshazzar, do you not remember this? Do you not remember that the God of heaven humbled Nebuchadnezzar? And you think that you're any different than him? He's setting the stage and looking at the king and going, King, why weren't you warned by this? Look at verse 22. You, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath. Notice this. The God in whose hand is your breath, king, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. We read over that. Guys, Daniel wasn't here 
when he was toasting the gods of wood and, and iron and stone. How does he know this? Because God is speaking through him. Because this is God through Daniel confronting Belshazzar, saying, Belshazzar, you fool. Did you not remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Did you not learn from his pride? How dare you lift up your heart against me in pridefulness is what God is saying here. How could you not get it? How dense must you be? Y'all, how does the phrase go? If, if we don't learn from the past, we're doomed to what? Repeat it. If we don't learn from history, we're doomed to repeat it. And that's, that's the situation here with Belshazzar. Not learning from the example that he had in Nebuchadnezzar. Not learning, hey, I gotta be careful about what's gone before me. And y'all, we need to be careful that we're not doing the same thing with God's word. That as we read God's word, we're understanding that this is instruction to us, yes, on how we should conduct ourselves, but also God has put within this book examples of how not to do it. God has included the, the, the memes, so to speak, within the pages of the scripture. You're doing it wrong. And he said, hey, don't do it this way. And we need to pay attention to that. And we need to heed those things. And we need to realize, just like those warning labels I was talking about at the beginning, just like it'd be just stupid to take a cup of hot McDonald's coffee and go, warning contents is hot. All right, well, let me see how that is for myself and dump it on your lap. Guys, that, that's just as dumb as, as Belshazzar. And that's just as dumb as you and I not listening to and conforming to what God wants us to do in the Bible. Second point tonight is this. Don't waste God's warnings. Don't waste God's warnings. Y'all, I think sometimes we forget that we live in 2021, not one. We forget that we live with safely 6,000 years or so of human history that has already happened before us. And the majority of it, in fact, most of it is recorded for us in this book. And so as we look back over the, the 4,000 plus years recorded in this book, and now the last 2,000 years that we can just look at, at what is in comparison to this modern history, we need to, to learn from these things. Most importantly, from God's word. It was amazing when we went to, uh, to Israel, we went to to town after town after town in Israel. And the way that it would work in, in ancient times, and we even see this at times in the Bible, is a conquering nation would come in and they would destroy a, a city and wipe out all of its walls and they would even burn it and then they would build their next layer on top. And then another army would come in and wipe that one out and then build theirs on top of that. And, then, and so you get what's called these tells, right? These mounds. And these archaeological digs are dug into these tells, into these mounds, and you're literally going through generation after generation after generation. You're going through empire after empire after empire and, and tracing the, the flow of history all the way through. And you realize when you're there, man, there have been a lot of people that have lived before us. In fact, we were in Jericho, and uh, there were no walls, right, because they're gone, because uh, Joshua fit the battle of that and did the whole, ah, and all the walls came tumbling down. But we were in Jericho, and they're doing digs there, archaeological digs there. And I remember coming up at this one, and there's this round pillar. And you could tell, right? You can tell when something is man-made. And we looked at that pillar, and I remember looking at our, our guide there and saying, hey, where does that date? Is that post-Jericho? And he said, oh, no, not at all. He said, that goes back, we're, we're thinking, to about 3,000 B.C. 3,000 B.C.? That's phenomenal. In fact, here's a, a picture from an area in Israel called Caesarea Maritima, Okay. This is uh, where Paul was imprisoned um, when he was writing the, the, the prison letters. 
was in Caesarea Maritima. Uh, this is where um, Herod had a, a palace up there as well at, at the time. But this is as you walk into Caesarea Maritima and you see the, the, the thing on the pillars there. I don't want you to pay attention to that. I want you to look at this thing, the, the piece of, of rubble in the, the weeds there. Okay, That piece of rock in the weeds there, it's actually a, a piece of a pillar, that's older than our entire nation. And it's chilling in the weeds. And I looked at our guide and I said, you guys don't like put a fence up around that? And he said, no, he said, no, not at all. He said, actually, in Israel, unless something is over a thousand years old, it's not really considered worth our time. <laughs> so he just took American and was like, you guys really aren't worth our time. <laughs> but honestly, like you, there's no fence. We could walk into that field and, and just lay down on that thing and take a nap. And it's Roman architecture and it's just there. And it just reminds you when you're there, man, we are not the first on the scene. Guys, when you read the Bible, you should have that same mentality. And re realize, sometimes we over-personalize this and we're like, oh, this is Jesus' love letter to me. No, this is the inspired word of God. And it covers, again, everything necessary for life and godliness. And we are not the first people to pick this up and read it and try to figure out what it means. And we need to pay attention to those that have come before us. We need to pay attention to the stories recorded in this book for us, just like Belshazzar. In fact, not like Belshazzar. We need to actually listen to what, what has gone before us and learn from it. Belshazzar didn't do that with Nebuchadnezzar. Yo, we need to do that not just with Nebuchadnezzar and with Belshazzar like we're trying to do right now, but also with, with everyone else as well. In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 2. He says, look, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we don't drift away from it. What we have heard is the things in the scriptures. Pay closer attention to it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, he's talking about the law, that the law was, was mediated through angels to Moses, right? The message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. In other words, people that ignored the message in the Old Testament, they were judged for ignoring it. People that neglected it, they were held to account of it even if they didn't care about it while they were alive. They, they still faced judgment for neglecting it. Verse three, if they receive judgment, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, y'all, we have a great salvation because you have 66 books of the Bible, the complete canon in your lap on your phone, taking up less than a gigabyte on your phone, right? I mean, that's unreal. The full revelation of God you've got in an app on your phone. What are you doing with it? That's the writer of Hebrews point. He's like, look at what we have. He's like, if you go back to the Israelites, they didn't have the Bible on, a, on the Bible app. They didn't have a daily Bible read. They had stone tablets that were in an ark, and if you touched the ark, you died. And yet they were still held accountable to it. That God had made himself known. And, and the writer of Hebrews is, is saying, look, how much more in trouble are you and I going to be if we ignore his word? If we set it aside? If we don't learn from it? He said, we've got... So much more at stake here. Uh, of those who have received much, what? Much will be required. Paul says in this in, in, in Hebrews chapter 10, 1 through 12. He's talking about the Old Testament here. 
He says, look, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. He's talking about the Exodus here, right? When the, the Israelites were led by the cloud and they passed through the Red Sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock. Notice that that's capitalized there. It's referring to Christ that followed them. The rock was, there it is for you. You didn't need me. Paul tells you. The rock was Christ. Verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Notice that. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Here's what Paul just said there. God ordained some of the Old Testament events so that you would learn from them today. These things took place as examples for us. So that, with the purpose that, we might learn from them and not fall into evil ways as they did. Paul continues in verse 7. He says, don't be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of the, them did and were destroyed by serpents. You remember the serpents that came and Moses had to make the bronze serpent and lift it up? nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Man, that's the message that Belshazzar needed. Belshazzar, you think you stand, but take heed. Heed of what? Heed of what's come before you. Learn from what's come before you. Learn from the past, Belshazzar, for you and I. Learn from God's word. And understand that so much of this is example for us. Y'all, God is immutable. What does that mean? It means that God does not what? Change. We live in a, a culture that doesn't like that. In fact, so many times in the church today, you'll hear people argue that the God of the Old Testament is not the same as the God of the New Testament. And I would say then your God is not God at all. If you want to unhitch yourself from the Old Testament because you've got dainty sensibilities, then you don't understand. God is immutable. He is unchanging. The God that you worship today, the God that we sang to earlier tonight is the same God of the Old Testament. One and the same. Unchangeable. The same today as he was then. The same today as he will be a million years from now. The same God. But here's the thing. You and I are not immutable. We are forgetful. We are prone to lose our focus. And that's why we need to constantly remember these things. That's why in the Old Testament, the law was to be recited yearly in the presence of the king. That's why in the Old Testament, the parents were supposed to, were supposed to write the law on the, their doorposts and on their their mantles, that, why they were supposed to continually teach it, because we have to continually remember and continually with intentionality learn from these stories and these accounts and these teachings. But y'all, don't waste God's warnings, because here's the reality. There's a day coming where you and I are going to be held accountable for this. I started tonight by saying, look, you have a leg up on so many people just by nature of the fact that you're here tonight. It has nothing to do with me, by the way. Please don't hear me say that. It has everything to do with the fact that you have the word of God before you. 
That's what it has to do with. That's an enormous privilege, but y'all, it's an enormous responsibility. What you are doing with this word. You know, Jesus talks about in the Gospels, he says of uh, Chorazin and, uh, and Gal- some other regions of Galilee. He says, look, it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you on the day of judgment. And you think, wow, that's crazy. Why? Because they were witnesses of the miracles of Christ and they still rejected him. Y'all, there are different levels of accountability that we will face in hell. Hell is going to be hellacious for everyone that is there. Don't get me wrong on that. It's not as though there's going to be some areas that are a relief or not miserable. No, all of it's miserable. But there are going to be some areas of hell that are far more miserable than others. And a lot of that has to do with the level of accountability we have based on our exposure to this book. What have you done with this? Don't waste God's warnings, y'all. Look at verse 24. Then from his presence, the hand was sent. Daniel's speaking still. Then from his presence, Yahweh, God, the the God, by the way, that you were just mocking Belshazzar, he sent this hand. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that is inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. So it's not like some oobly-goobly language that was not a real thing. Daniel's able to read it. Why was Daniel able to read it and the others weren't? Because God was making it clear that this message was from him. Many, many, tekel and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Verse 29, then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with a purple, with purple and a chain of gold was put around his neck. What a farce this is. And a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom, that every night Belshazzar the Chaldean, in that very night, sorry, verse 30, that very night Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. You've been weighed, measured, and found wanting. What a terrifying statement that is. History records what happened on this very night. As most likely they were having this party and carrying on because of the massive size of Babylon. Here's what was happening. The Persians were camped out outside the walls. You remember I said the, the river Euphrates went through the, the middle of the city? So it passed under the walls and went through the middle of the city. And the water's, water level was high enough that when it passed under the walls, nobody could, nobody could get in through the river. But the Persians, here's what they did. They sent some men from their army a few miles up river on the Euphrates and they dug trenches and they actually diverted the Euphrates River, which caused the water level at the walls of Babylon to drop so low that eventually the entire Persian army was able to go through the opening in the wall that had allowed the river that they were so confident and trusting in to pass through. And all of the Persian army comes in through not the first wall only, but also then through the second wall. And they didn't have to mount siege ramps. They didn't have to destroy a single stone. And in fact, because this party was going on and everybody was so confident, they really didn't even have to fire a shot. And as this party is going and they're toasting the gods of wood and silver and stone, and as the hand is showing up and the writing is on the wall, and as Belshazzar is terrified, and as Daniel is interpreting it, and then as Belshazzar finally says, here's the robe and here's the gold chain, and then what happens? It says that very night Belshazzar was killed. You 
Y'all, the writing on the wall. It's where we get that phrase, by the way. The writing on the wall. It means that something's a foregone conclusion. And the reason is, is because of this story. The writing on the wall to Nebuchadnezzar, or to Belshazzar, sorry, had said, look, you don't measure up. You have been measured. You have been weighed. And, and we might think to ourselves, well, is this fair? Of course it's fair. He had every opportunity to learn from, from Nebuchadnezzar. He had every opportunity, just like Paul would say in Romans 1, right, to look at creation and see that there's a creator God. He had every opportunity, and he rejected, and he mocked, and he was arrogantly opposed to the God of creation. And he was weighed against his standard, and he was found wanting. And his life ended, but more tragically than that, we know where Belshazzar is currently right now, and that is still suffering under the wrath of God for all of eternity. Y'all, that evaluation is coming for all of us. The writer of Hebrews says the, it exists for us, humans, to die once and then comes judgment. There's no second chance. That day is set. Psalm 139 says, the number of our days God has set in stone before even one of them came to pass. And so your appointment with the Lord as the judge is set. Your appointment, your time slot before the Lord where he will say, you've been weighed, you've been measured, and then deliver the verdict. That day is set in stone. And the question is our third point. Are you ready? Be ready for your own evaluation. Be ready for your own evaluation. See, here's the thing, guys. To go back to our first point here, to, to remember what is coming for this world. So much of what we put our, our worth in, our value, in, in our hope, in our confidence in is so dumb. It's so dumb. Being caught up in trivial things. Things that don't matter. And living your life in rebellion to God, thinking that you have everything in front of you and you've got plenty of time and you'll deal with things later when you grow up or just if you just don't care. Guys, I just, this day is coming for you. And I'm not trying to get morbid and scare you with death. I'm trying to say, look, you can be ready for your own evaluation. And that's what I want you to see. I want you to understand. I want you to own. I want you to live in the reality of the fact that you can be prepared to stand before the God of this universe. And you can be prepared for him to say, you've been weighed, you've been measured. And look, welcome. Come into eternity in the presence of my glory. You can be ready for this. And the best way for you to do that, in fact, the only way for you to be ready is to ensure that you have repented from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That is the only way for you to be ready. And that is the most important thing that you can do tonight. Most important thing. There are relationships out here in the bridge that I'm aware of that are just garbage, vacuous holes of nothingness. And some of you have put all of your hope and confidence in these relationships and, and you're just wasting away your life and you're just playing games and you're throwing a party when the world is headed for its end. 
There are things that you want to do with your life, and there are, are, are goals and dreams and ambitions that are not pleasing to the Lord that exist out here that, that you guys just need to let go of in order to pursue Christ. There are things that you love more than Jesus, and, and I just want to plead with you and beg with you, let them go. Getting married is not the ultimate. Graduating is, is not the ultimate. Being accepted by a certain group is not the ultimate. Having this degree or that degree is not the ultimate. Making this much money is not the ultimate because all of it someday is going to be gone. This is Belshazzar. He was second in command over Babylon and none of it mattered that night. All of his power, wealth, glory, it, was, it meant nothing that night. You guys, we have been exposed to so much truth of God's word, and that's such a blessing, and yet at the same time, like I said earlier, it's such a great and heavy responsibility for us. Because listen to what Paul says in Romans 1. In fact, grab your Bibles, open them up to Romans 1.18. Flip over to Romans 1.18. I want you to see this. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1, 18 through 25, he's, he's leveling his indictment against all of mankind. I want you to pay attention to this. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And notice the extent of the revelation that indicts them as guilty here. Verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, how did they know him? By the existence of creation, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Look at verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness have suppressed the truth. What truth? The truth of creation. Guys, the truth of creation cannot save anyone. What it can do is say that there's a creator God who can save. And so the, the level, the bar for the wrath of God being revealed is ankle deep. Here's what I mean. Y'all have been exposed to the word of God and the gospel of God, which can save. How much greater wrath do you think God has in store for those who have been exposed to this and still rejected and suppressed and ignored this? Guys, are you truly ready for your own evaluation. When you die, you're, you're not given an exam or a quiz or a test. You're not gonna be asked for your spiritual resume. 
basically what's going to happen is you're going to be asked one question, and here it is. What did you do with Jesus? What did you do with Jesus? Did you trust him? Did you follow him? Did you love him? How you answer that question is going to determine the rest of your evaluation. Guys, this has nothing to do with threatening you with death right now. Honestly, totally doesn't. You guys can all live to be 105 years old for all I care. I hope you do. But even if you're 105 years old and you're showing up at church because you feel like you're supposed to show up at church, you've got your walker out and you're wearing that old lady perfume that they all buy at the same place somewhere that stinks to high heaven. (laughs) And you show up just because you've always been going to church since you were in college. And it's the thing that you're supposed to do. And if you live to be 105 years old and you never, you never truly surrender to Christ, the evaluation's still coming. The evaluation is still coming. And y'all, here's the thing. There are old ladies in hell just like there are Islamic extremists who blow themselves up. There are a ton of nice people in hell. Because it has nothing to do with whether or not you're a, a nice person or not. It has everything to do with Jesus. That's how you can be ready for your evaluation. We live in 2021 with roughly 6,000 years of human history in our rearview mirror. And just over 4,000 of that is recorded in the pages of this book. And they're the most significant, dare I say, the most significant 4,000 years of human history that have ever existed. And so my question for you tonight is, what have you done with it? Just like if we were to go back there, jump in our time machines, run back to this party and stop and say, hey, Belshazzar, what have you done with what you have been told about Nebuchadnezzar? What have you done knowing that your kingdom's going to fall? How should that change how you live? You guys have an opportunity tonight because God is a gracious God. And he's a patient God and he loves you. So tonight, resolve, if you haven't done business with Jesus, let's do business with Jesus tonight. If you have done business with Christ, but man, you got to kick things into gear and say, man, i got to stop wasting the warnings that I've been given. Praise God that you have tonight. This moment. Because we're not guaranteed anything beyond it. Let's pray. Father, heavy text, and yet you are such a good and kind God to give us this as a reminder. Hey, look, we need to pay attention to you. And we need to pay attention to what you've revealed to us. And we need to pay attention to what you've told us in your word. We need to, to live ready for your return at any time so that we can be ready for our evaluation. God, and thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your love for us, Father, that you gave Christ for us. 
so that we can be prepared. Lord, we want to live lives that are lives born out of a love for Christ. We want to love because you first loved us, God. 